Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. or Be of good courage. I have overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We rejoice in that today. Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. For the past several weeks, we've been exploring pictures of prophecy about Jesus Christ and his first coming. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, tying it into the New Testament. And then we have embarked on a journey through what we call the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's the earthly genealogy of the coming of Christ that we know to be the uncreated one, the one preeminent one above all others. And so it simply goes through Generation after generation, it says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, or the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham. So you might ask the question, why would Matthew, under the inspiration of God, begin his story of Jesus, unlike the other writers of the gospel story with the genealogy? Well, I think there are two or maybe three obvious reasons. One, Matthew has a specific focus toward the, the Jewish people. He's building a, a case that Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, and so he has strategically placed his gospel account at the beginning of the New Testament as a bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament. We've been emphasizing that. Also, counting the genealogy of Jesus, there are no less than 10 genealogies in the Bible. Uh, you find them in Genesis. You find them in other books in the Old Testament. It was very prominent and very important to people to have that geneal genealogical record of how people's lives impacted others, etc. And so that would be the second reason. And so he's drawing on that Jewish perspective. But one of the most insightful reasons for me is that in first century Jewish thought, your descent or lineage was even more important than your character. Now let that sink in to our East Texas minds. Their heritage and their grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and great-grandpa, all of that in first century Judaism had taken a turn to where who they were related to was more important than their relationship with God and the character of their lives. And so he uses that false perspective to show that Jesus comes 
straight through the right lineage, but he is set apart not by this lineage, but by his lifeless, eternal reign and rule as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So today, if you're putting your trust in who your people are or who you belong to or who you're connected with, you've missed the whole point. The ultimate question is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you appropriated and received him as your Lord and Savior and are you trusting him alone with your life and eternity as the one who gave himself as a substitutionary sacrificial offering on your behalf in full payment of your sin? That's the ultimate question. So now do you understand the the conflict that he had so many times with the religious leaders? They had a position, but they didn't have the possession of character and commitment to God. They were simply in place at times due to their heritage, not their character. Before we read the text, one example would be Nicodemus. Remember, he was a leader in the Sanhedrin. He comes to Jesus by night, and they begin to dialogue about the things of God. He he openly states, we know that you could not do the things that you do if you were not of God. He was saying, we, we recognize you are very unique. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus, who comes from the right lineage and had the right education, I tell you, unless you are born again or born anew, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You have no hope. Nicodemus immediately says, how can that be? How can a man, when he is old, enter again into his mother's womb? Jesus said, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you have no stake in the kingdom of God. That was the picture here. Nicodemus was still thinking about his physical heritage. How, how do I go back and start over and get that right? And Jesus was saying, no. Born of water, physically, through the right people, doesn't even cover you. Only being born again by the Spirit of God, by putting your faith and trust in me, he was saying to Nicodemus, will get you to heaven. So keep that in mind as we look at this connection where we find these prophetic footprints in the Old Testament that that come into the New Testament in the genealogy and and what's this what I picture this like it's such a simple maybe a childish illustration but it's like you have the the Old Testament you have the New Testament you have the footprints and you have the reality you have what was predicted and what was depicted in fulfillment of that like like two sets of eyelets. Then when you look at the person of Jesus, he's the thread that ties it all together. Now I know that's a simple illustration. But for me, that's what, what the scriptures are doing here. They're just pulling it all together, 
tying it up nicely in place to reinforce to us who Jesus is. So we're going to read a few words in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the first part of verse 6. And Jesse begot or fathered David the king. Jesse begot David the king. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize today, hopefully all of us, that Jesus is the king of the universe. He alone reigns by himself. His sacrifice was sufficient. His resurrection gives us life. So Father, as we we look at your eternal plan and how you put it in place, how you brought it about, We stand in awe of your word, and we want that to happen today. But even beyond that, we want to stand in awe of the gift of your son. So, Father, please speak through me today. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. We pray this in the name of by the privilege of being belonging to Christ the Messiah. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we've been unpacking a sentence. Uh, It's a sentence that we take phrase by phrase and are using that to guide our thoughts. So I want to give you the sermon in a sentence. And then we'll unpack it. First of all, God loves people. Then let's read the rest of it together. Let's read all of it. God loves people and works through them with providential precision beyond the brokenness and failure in their past by pouring out his mercy and grace to exalt his son, Jesus Christ, and to fulfill his eternal plan of redeeming all who believe in him. Now that's quite a mouthful and a heartful, isn't it? But just think about those phrases. First of all, God loves people. That means every person he has ever created is important to him. So as we look at names in this list in Matthew chapter 1, uh, we know that people are important. God included them in his plan and in his word. And they're a part of his plan of redemption and salvation as it unfolds in the New Testament when we look at this. But but not only that, God loves people and works through them with providential precision. 
with precision. No mistakes, no remakes. He does it with precision. Therefore, nobody in the room is a mistake. Nobody in the room is wasting air when you breathe it. Nobody in the room is worthless because you are created with the image of God. And, and he's working your life with providential precision. He, he's bringing about a purpose and a plan, and that's why you're in the room right now. You, you might think of all other kinds of reasons why you're in the room. The one main reason is that God has guided you here in his providential precision. And so as we look at these lives listed here in Matthew chapter 1 from a, a different era and a different land and a different language, it doesn't matter. God's providential precision moves beyond all of that and it moves through that to bring about his plan and his purpose. But then the sentence goes on. And this is the part we're going to focus on today. God loves people and works through them with providential precision beyond the brokenness and failure in their past by pouring out his mercy and his grace. So what is your past? It's everything from the day you were born up to the last breath you took. Oh, now it's the next breath. God's grace and mercy can cover all of that. These were not perfect people. They were broken people. They had fears, frustrations, and failures just like we do. They, they had things that they were driven by and gripped by and enslaved by. They struggled with the same kind of life we do, but somehow God's grace and mercy worked in them and through them to bring about his plan and his purpose. Beyond the brokenness and failure in their past, by pouring out his mercy and his grace. You might say, well, my past is huge. I've got a pile of stuff here. I'm telling you, his mercy and grace is greater. He has enough for every one of us and all of us and eternity filled with more to spare. You are not the first person to experience what you're experiencing, to have the past that you have, and God is not looking at you and saying, my, this is a tough one. He's not. He's in the business of changing lives. And so we have two names that we read in verse 6. Jesse and David. You might know fair amount about King David but the name Jesse doesn't seem very significant does it? Other than he was the father of the king now God didn't choose David to be king because Jesse was a great guy and had raised a, a great son because God didn't choose David because he was a great guy or a great son. 
He chose him because he was a person weak enough to trust him, broken enough to believe him. Was he perfect? No, but he was perfectly God's. That's what made the difference. So let's look at Jesse today. The scripture doesn't say a lot about him, but we do know one thing more. The prophecies of the Messiah reach back in those footprints in the Old Testament and use the person of Jesse as a picture of who the Messiah will be. Now, I think that's great news for Jesse, don't you think? That somehow his name is not lost in the shadow of his son, the king, but his name is there completely overshadowed, not just by his son, but by the Messiah, which his life would point to. So the first thing I want us to notice as we look at Jesse, the one who begot David, is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one. We draw that from Jesse's experience. Let's look first of all at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, to put this in its prophetical context. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, find Jesse's name. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Then it goes on and talks about the Messiah. Here Isaiah is prophesying 700 years prior to the coming of Messiah, and he's saying, if you want to Look for him. If you want to know who he is, he wrote down in a recorded manner, he comes from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots, that branch being Christ, the Messiah. So it refers to the stem of Jesse, it being a branch. So what does that mean? It means somehow he's he's connected to the household of Jesse. So, So where did Jesse live? Well, he lived in Bethlehem. Anything important ever happened at his house and among his household? There among his heritage that he would send forth? Did anything important happen there? Yes. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord sends Samuel, the prophet, to anoint the new king of Israel. 1 Samuel 15, Saul has believed that he's an exception to the rules. He's done something Very sinful. You have to read the story. Uh, It says there that God says through Samuel to obey is better than sacrifice. And so he is released 
from God's favor and blessing as king, although he's still on the throne. And he sends Samuel to that small village of Bethlehem to find and anoint the next king of Israel. Now think about this. Everything about Jesus comes together in this meeting in Bethlehem. Samuel is the last of the judges, the first of the prophets. He functions not only as judge and prophet, but as priest at times. And he's there to anoint the king. What is magnified and expressed through Jesus? He is judge. He is a prophet, but much more than that. He is our high priest, and he is our king. You see all the imagery that comes together here in Bethlehem? And so when that birth of Jesus physically happens in Bethlehem, all of that centering, the the judge has been born, the prophet has been born, the king, the priest. It's all wrapped up in his identity. These are all foreshadowings of the one to come. So let's just read this account together, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16. Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Now notice, twice he's already stated, I'm not asking you to decide. I'm asking you to find the one I have already chosen. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify or consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated or sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused and rejected him. 
For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now David was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good looking. And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. In that scene in Jesse's house, we see that God took the one who appeared to be the least and made him the greatest as king of Israel. He would soon years later, take the throne. It was completely different than anyone had thought. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a Jewish young lady and a Jewish young man was there as the parental guardian because that was a virgin birth, remember? It looked like he would be the least of society. But he was the one exalted to be the Savior of the world. There's so many parallels in this story. But there in the household of Jesse, he anointed David as king. Now, anointing meant a sign of God's blessing and his favor. It, it meant that he had been set apart for a special plan in his life that God had for him? Do you know what Christ means? On the other hand, it means the anointed one in all caps. It means Messiah. Jesus was his name. Yeshua or Jesus, Christ was his title. The anointed Messiah and King. Here's David who's going to be king with a small K. Here's Jesus who's going to be king of kings in all caps. Both anointed and presented there as 
the anointed. So keep that in mind and let's turn to Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. It says there in Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect or chosen one in whom my soul delights, all of this about the Messiah, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now you know what it it states there in, in 1 Samuel 16? At the end of verse 13, we didn't read it a moment ago, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So the Spirit comes upon him as he's anointed king. We're going to see that when God's favor is pronounced at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit comes upon him in a greater measure because he is God the Son and God the man He is the Son of God, the Son of Man, all at the same time. We don't know how that worked because He is God and that's divine. And we find that here it says that's one way to know Him. The Spirit will come upon Him because He will be His chosen one. Then if you look at Isaiah chapter 61, before we look at the baptism of Jesus, Isaiah 61. It's a prophecy from the Old Testament. This is actually the place in the scroll of Isaiah that Jesus reads from at the beginning of his ministry when he goes back and reads the scroll of Isaiah, turns to this place, which was not marked by chapters and verses, remember. Not easy to locate, but he was the one who inspired all of the writing anyway. He he draws from what we call Isaiah 61, and he reads this prophecy, but listen to how it ties in. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Speaking of the Messiah. What is saying 42? One, his Spirit come upon him. Then he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness." the planning of the Lord that he may be glorified. So everything will spring from the reality that he is the anointed one upon whom the Spirit dwells. So let's look at John chapter 1 in the New Testament and tie this together. John chapter 1. Now remember the connection. We've been to Jesse's home. We've looked from Jesse's home to the manger, and then we've looked back from the manger to Jesse, and in between you have these prophecies that pull this together a little bit. 
But notice what happened the day that Jesus was baptized. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. He's talking about Jesus. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethbara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me and ranks higher than me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now what was that message from God based on to John? Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, God was using his word, reaffirming that and confirming that, that the one upon whom the Spirit would rest, that would be the sign that he is the Messiah. And notice it says, he came like a dove and remained upon him. Remember what else happened at the baptism of Jesus? comes out of the water praying. There was a voice from heaven as the Spirit descends upon him. And the voice from heaven from God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a great picture. The triune God present there together, sealing and confirming Jesus to be the Messiah. So that's just one big example of many that we're looking at. But the truth here is, Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the anointed one as proclaimed and predicted by the prophets and predicted by the prophets and depicted in the gospel about him. But here's the second thing and the final thing. Don't let the word final trick you. Jesus Christ knows the hearts of all people and is worthy to judge every human heart. Where do we get that? Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's go back to Jesse's house. You may recall what was said here. Eliab comes strutting in looks like the most capable, the most confident, the most courageous. And notice what it says in verse 6. Samuel says, Surely 
The Lord's anointed is before him. This is the one. I mean, who wouldn't pick this guy? Who wouldn't want him to be king? Just look at his appearance. Look at his confidence. Look at his countenance. Notice verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused or rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now keep that verse in your mind. The Lord does not see as man sees. He does not judge from the outward appearance because he sees the heart. Now let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Another prophecy that bears the name, uh, I mean that bears the name of Jesse, and it, it also is found in, in yet another place in this passage. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 11. Again, a prophecy about the Messiah. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. We read that. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of the eyes, nor decide by the hearing of the ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of of his waist. Then notice verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Now look back at verse 3. You'll hear there an echo of 1 Samuel 16, 7. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Are you basing your identity on what people say about you? Now, probably not in Crockett or Houston County. There are places in the world where there's a lot of gossip going. I'm being facetious there. And if if you listen to their compliments, you'll be devastated by their criticism because your identity is shaky if you're basing it on what people say about you and what they've heard about you. And that's how we make judgments about people, by our 
first impression by our social, sociological standing in society. We, we judge people with sight and with what we hear. Jesus isn't limited to that. He's the Messiah. He doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. What is this saying about the Messiah? Not only is he the Messiah, he is God because he has the ability to judge as God does and to make decisions as God makes decisions. His delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. You feel it kind of tightening up there? Well, well, let's look here in John chapter 2. Turn back to John chapter 2. And you find a comment made about Jesus in the New Testament. John chapter 2. Rather than reading the context, let me just give it to you. Jesus enters the temple at the Passover, full of people with mixed motives for being there, many for the wrong motives. They're exchanging money. They're having lesser than sufficient sacrifices, etc., trying to make it convenient for people, etc. There's a lot of details we could go into. But it says that Jesus began to overturn the tables of the money changers. And he says in verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That was a prophecy about the Messiah. So here his zeal is coming forth for the house of his father. So the Jews answered and said to Jesus, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Then it goes back to the action. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. What does that mean? People began to identify this, this is the Messiah. But notice what it says about Jesus, verse 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. What's that saying? He was not judging by the sight of his eyes or the hearing of his ears, because he knew what was in every one of them. And you know what's true this morning? He knows what you're thinking right now. Wait a minute. He knows what you're about to think. 
He knows the words that you're going to speak before you ever speak them. He knows your heart rate. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything outside of you and everything inside of you. You're not hiding anything from him. You think you might be, but it's all open to him. He knows your insides better than you do. He sees all of the good, all of the filth, all of the deception. He he sees it all because he doesn't judge by the seeing of the eyes or the hearing of the ears. He doesn't judge by appearances. He judges the heart because he looks on the heart. So let me just give you some examples through the Gospels. Matthew 9, 4, it says, When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he said, Why do you respond with evil in your hearts? Now, can you imagine me coming down here and saying, Frank, why are you thinking that about me while I'm preaching? You know what he's thinking about me? Would that be intimidating? That would not be good for church growth, would it? If I could read your thoughts. But Jesus knows all, and he enters into conversation with their thoughts. Isn't that crazy? Why was he able to do that? He sees the heart. He knows your mind. He knows all about you. Jesus Christ knows the heart of all people and is worthy to judge every human heart. Well, Matthew 12, 25, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. They thought they were hiding these thoughts and here he just brings it out in the open. Matthew 22, 18 says this, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Not only does he know your thoughts, he knows your motives. Has anybody ever tried to tell you why you did something? And you were thinking, if anybody knows why I did something, I ought to know. You know, one of the worst things you can do is assume you know somebody's motives. You know why we make those assumptions? We judge with the seeing of the eyes, the hearing of the ears. Not Jesus. He sees the heart. He knows the mind. And that's why he could say, why do you test me, you hypocrites? And they didn't object and say, that's not what I was thinking. knows your mind. Mark 2, 8. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? What was he looking at? He was looking at their hearts. Luke 5, 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? So several things about the Messiah we've seen. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. He'll come out of the root of Jesse. All of that's tied together because the spirit of God came upon David as the little K king. The spirit of God came upon Jesus as the big K king. What a, what a beautiful picture foreshadowing and 
prophesying, footprints of prophecy. In just that statement, Jesse begot David. And at the house of Jesse, haven't we learned a lot? Samuel's told there, don't judge by the seeing of your eyes. God doesn't judge from the outward appearance. He sees the heart. And here's the reality. Not only does he know your heart and your thoughts, your past, your present, your future, you are accountable to him. You are accountable to him. I am accountable to him. I don't just answer to people that I can bait and switch with. You may think, well, I'm I'm fooling everybody. No. You might be fooling everybody, yourself included, but you are not fooling Jesus. He knows who you are. He knows you're standing before him, and that's all that matters in eternity. And some people are selling out for a good facade before people and failing to see that being transparent before God and understanding that they're accountable to him and making a commitment to Christ is the only thing that really matters. You can fool everyone but Jesus. Jesus is described in 2 Timothy 4, 1 as the one who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He is the one whom, to whom you will give account after your final breath. And guess what? He's not going to check your Facebook page and tally up how many scriptures you've put there. He's not going to go see how many friends you have. He's not going to see how many likes you had. None of that's going to matter. He's not going to interview mama and daddy He's not going to say, what kind of person was this guy? Would you, would you want me to have him in heaven? He's not going to go to any of these people that you fooled. Why? He doesn't need them. He knows your heart. He knows your standing before him. He, he knows who you are and what you have done or not done in relationship to him. He will judge the living and the dead. There will be no exceptions. He'll never, oh, you're a Baptist, yeah, you get a free pass. No. Oh, you're a good guy, good old boy. Yeah, I got you. You were in East Texas. Okay, come on in. No. There are no exemptions. You will be before him. You have no exemption. You cannot beg off. You will stand before him and give an account of your life and your heart and how you've responded or failed to respond to him and that will determine your eternity. There will be no excuses. You can't point back at your heritage. You can't point back at your surroundings. You can't point back at your education. There are no excuses before God. If you've heard this message today, all excuses are gone. And there's no blaming. Because he's not like an earthly judge. When people think about an earthly judge, they think, well, you're not guilty unless you get caught. And if you get caught, you can get off. Not with God. 
are caught. Every thought, every word, every action. He knows, he sees, you you can't, you're guilty, I'm guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death, eternity, and hell apart from God. Unless Jesus Christ becomes the Lord of your life. And you bow before him as Lord and receive him and acknowledge him as your Messiah, your King. And you turn from the sin in your life. Not that you're going to live a perfect life from that moment on, but from that moment on, he indwells you by his Holy Spirit. He empowers you toward victory. You're never alone again. And you have your sin, past, present, and future, forgiven. And you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So my question today is, not are you a church member, not who do you belong to, who's your kin, no. Do you know Jesus? Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Where are you in relationship to Jesus? You say, well, I'm in church today. I didn't ask you about church. I asked you about Jesus. There's a big difference in coming to the church and coming to Christ. Have you come to Christ? If Christ is not at the center of your life, no other help that you can get can help you. But with Christ and his forgiveness and being clothed in his righteousness and him filling you with his Holy Spirit, you can overcome. Not because of how great you are, but because of how great he is. Now that doesn't sound like such a simple phrase, does it? Jesse got David because Jesse points so vividly to Jesus for us. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.